0: Hey, Julie. Hey, Lisa, how are you? I'm good, how are you?
1: Oh gosh, um, you know, I've been better, but um, I can't complain because the timing couldn't have been better. I can't believe I'm saying this, but I have I have freaking COVID again. And um, it just came on like as a total surprise on Sunday night. And I tested negative on the rapid, on Monday morning, I just had a little sore throat, but something just told me to get it checked because it was a sore throat that was not ordinary for allergies. So I went and got a PCR and um, the results came back and indeed I'm positive positive. and I really didn't need the results to tell me because I feel like shit. Um, I'm trying not to be frustrated when I think about it because as many who've listened to our podcast already know, I struggled a lot with returning to running after having COVID in January. And also I'm so close to getting that new booster and I'm 49 and I'm turning 50 next week, like literally a week. Happy your old birthday. <laughs> thank you. So I, I, it's just, I'm lucky, but why am I lucky? I'm lucky because it happened after I moved um, Noah into college, which was really successful, and he's doing great. And after um, I had the opportunity to take Ella to see Harry Styles, and I'm putting Ella in quotes because honestly, I enjoyed it probably almost as much as she did. He has a residency in Madison Square Garden this month, and tickets are not that hard to get if you live near New York because. They're, they're being sold all the time because I think people bought a lot for each night. There's 30 shows, but he's an incredible performer. It was a lot of fun. And I have a quick story about it. And that is um, we grabbed a quick bite to eat before the concert. And I usually put my credit card and driver's license in the small pocket of my Lululemon fanny pack. So when I take my phone out, you know, things aren't coming out of it. I was in a hurry and I made the massive mistake of putting my wallet, of putting my license and credit card in the big pocket with my phone. I took my phone out to prepare to uh, bring up the tickets, which were in my Apple Wallet, and in doing so, unbeknownst to me, my credit card and license fell um, on the ground in the middle of New York City en route to Madison Square Garden. As we cross the street, these two Scottish men who were also going to the concert run up to us. I wish I could mimic their accent right now, but I can't. They're like, ma'am, ma'am, we nearly killed ourselves, but we have your license and your credit card. You dropped it pay it forward, pay it forward. And I literally like hugged these strangers. I told them this means the world is good. Thank you so much. And of course I'll pay it forward. I couldn't believe it. I was embarrassed because that's such a rookie mistake in New York city, but Hey, you know, it happens. And I felt so lucky the whole night during the whole concert. I just kept thinking, Oh my gosh, I am so lucky. So the following day, Ella and I are walking from breakfast back to our hotel. We stayed at the Even Hotel, which was fantastic, where we hosted Run Fest in D.C. We stayed at the one near Madison Square Garden. Got a great raid on Hotwire, by the way. Walking up 34th Street. We're about on the corner of 34th and 7th. Very populated area on a Saturday morning. And I hear a woman on the ground screaming, can somebody help me? Can somebody help me? My boyfriend is not responding. And she's literally hitting him, punching him, trying to get her boyfriend to respond, and he's clearly unresponsive. I stop and I am shocked. Maybe I shouldn't be. It's New York City. Everybody is just walking by and she's yelling, does anyone have any Narcan? So clearly it was an overdose situation, which doesn't diminish though. It's a human life and everyone is just walking by, including like the security guard who was standing in front of the coffee shop right there. So I I called 911 with my cell phone and um, then as I call 911 dispatcher answers, I explain where we are. And then the security guard gives me the address to give to them. And um, I, he said, well, I'm going to tell you how to administer CPR. I said, oh, I'm going to tell her how to administer it. Just here's the address. He said, ma'am, ma'am, I'm going to tell you how to tell her. I said, oh, no, it's OK. I know, I know. <laughs> so I was so panicked. I didn't want to listen to the dispatcher, which I know is wrong. But we know CPR and we're trained. And she was ready to do it. So she administered CPR, she did the breaths, she made sure not to move his head, he was positioned well already for CPR. And she starts doing heel to heel, pumping up his chest, a crowd forms, and everyone's like, faster, faster, come on, you can do it naked. So we're all mimicking the motion for her to do it. And he woke up. And as he woke up, the ambulance came, and at that point, I knew that he would be in good care. And I looked at my watch. And I was like, Ella, we got to run. The bus is leaving in 15 minutes. So we hightail it, grab our little suitcases, don't say a word, hop on the bus. And we both were like, did that really seriously just happen? So that, ladies and gentlemen, is how I paid it forward.
0: <laughs> wow. It's
1: not funny, but... It's just—it was the craziest story. I had well, a falls well
0: that ends well. At least it has a happy ending. But that's absolutely crazy. Only in New York City, and truly, only to you, Julie. Like, <laughs> these are only things that happen to you. Like most was, of us yeah. go through life, and things don't like that, like that. don't happen. But I'm glad that he's okay, and I'm glad that we have CPR training to, uh, you know, that we can rely upon if and when we need it, even if it doesn't have to do with anything related to running. Yes. Or anyway, as coaches. Moving on to running-related
1: top topics, let's talk about a new topic. It's called heat humidity. Can you share what happened this weekend at the Annapolis 10Miler? First of all, congratulations on your second-place age group win, which is a huge feat, given that you had just raced a half marathon the weekend before. And I know you weren't racing this to your full potential because it was super hot. But you you knocked it out of the park, and you clearly paced yourself properly. And can you share a little bit about what happened on Sunday.
0: Yeah, well, you know, it's actually a good, we're we're always telling our runners that, you know, trust the process that uh, the heat and humidity really does affect your running. And once the weather gets nicer, you'll really feel that difference. And it's hard for people to really uh, believe that and embrace it until they see it. Um, But I, I did see it firsthand when we went out to San Diego Um, in in LA and San Diego the weekend before for the for the America's finest city half marathon and it was a little bit humid but it was nothing like what we've dealt with here it it was funny because the the runners in San Diego who train and live in San Diego were complaining about how humid it was and I was kind of laughing to myself of like you do not know humidity this is it was like 70 degrees and maybe 60 or 70 percent humidity so it was like I said a little more humid than they're used to but nothing bad and it felt great I felt you know I had a really great race I was able to pace well finish strong and I finished saying wow there is there you go like heat and humidity definitely makes a difference so um came back here this weekend one week later and um totally different story woke up on Sunday morning the temperature at the start was 74 degrees and the dew point was 74 degrees so folks <laughs> mathematically speaking that is a 100 percent 100 percent Humidity, and you just knew. Um, uh, Paul and I ran it together, and when we got to the, we actually went up with um, Rachel Miller, our favorite PT, who was serving as a medical spotter. So she actually ran the race at a little bit slower pace to watch for any medical issues that may come up. So we went up, and we had to get there early for um, Rachel had to be there early for her volunteer position. So we got there a little bit early and had some time. So I asked Paul, you know, if we could just do like a warm up. There's a almost a one mile loop around about a one mile loop around the stadium. And I said, let's just go do. Since we had some extra time, let's do a one mile loop. So we ran real, real easy, conversational. Just ran one mile loop around the stadium. By the time we got back to the car, I was drenched. So I knew then that it was going to be a bad, um, be a bad morning. <laughs> so, uh, um, and you said I paced well, although I, you know may have not paced as well as I should have. I can typically finish the Annapolis 10 mile in around 110, that's usually my finish time. So I figured I'd start out with the 110 pace group and just see how I felt and see how it went. Um, So I started with the 110 pace group and we had two really great pacers they were right on target they really uh kind of caution runners that pace groups are great and pacers are really um, you know we love that they volunteer to do this but they're human and sometimes they go out a little too fast or you know they fall off their pace or um so you've got to trust your own training and watch your own pacing and i was doing that and they were really great they were first couple miles we were first mile were like a few seconds too fast so the second mile they pulled it back a little bit so they were really good about um you know telling us when water stations were coming up and. I kind of struck up a conversation with, there were two pacers with one of the pacers um, as we were running. And he was mentioning that he's just really feeling the humidity and that he was kind of struggling and, um, you know, that he just didn't feel so great. And we got close to water stop, probably maybe mile three or so. And um, uh, we had just done the podcast, the interview that we have coming up with Dr. Matt Sedgley. We had just done that um, interview not long ago. And uh, as you'll hear in, in our interview with, with uh, Dr. Sedgley, he is an expert in heat adaptation and running in heat and humidity. And uh, you'll hear what he mentions. One of the things he mentions is that um, pouring water on your head or on top of you when it is that humid outside is actually not a great idea because the water can not then ev- can't evaporate and pull the heat away from your body. It actually basically traps it in. So I remember that little nugget. And as we're going through the water stop, um, the pacer that I was running with said, I'm gonna grab some water and pour it on my head because I am just really I'm struggling. I'm like overheating. I feel like I'm dehydrating, I feel hot. I need some, I'm gonna pour some over my head. And I said, Stop, don't pour it over your head. It's a hundred percent humidity. If you do that, you're gonna trap in the heat. So I kind of explained to him what Dr. Sedgley told us. And he said, Wow, thank thank you for that, that tip. I appreciate that. I'm gonna grab some water. Um, I said, you know, grab some Gatorade if you can get some electrolytes in. Um But I said, you know, don't pour it on top of your head. So uh, interestingly enough, a couple, maybe another, I can't remember, maybe another mile or two later, he handed the pacing sign to the other uh, pacer and said, I'm out, I cannot, I cannot sustain this pace. He just was really, really struggling in the humidity. and about that time was when I started feeling like I better back off a little bit too. Um, the hills come in the second half of anyone who's running Atlas 10 mile or knows after mile four is when we start going through a lot of hills through the neighborhood. And I just knew that if I kept up the same pace and that effort that felt really hard in that humidity, that, that it was gonna be a really, really tough second half. So I started about that time also kind of pulling back my pace a little and was able to adjust appropriately and, and kind of dial in a, a better you know, a better effort and better pace that I held steady through the, through the second half, but he had to drop out um, of that. So I think it's just a really good example. As soon as I crossed the finish line I ran into some of our MCRC racing team teammates. And, uh, you know, we all were kind of saying the same thing. I, I think I've run Annapolis at least Ten to fifteen times. I mean, it's a race I've run almost every year since I started running, and um, I think in in my memory that was probably the worst humidity we ever had. And in talking to some of our teammates, who've also run it a lot of years, we all kind of said the same thing: of wow, that was probably the worst. And and we were kind of comparing notes, and everyone was probably two to three minutes off of their normal time, and that was consistent with our age group results. You know, I kind of thought. I'm not gonna get an age group awarded. This was a little you know, slower than I can typically do to place in the age group. And it was across the board. We were all slower um, than other years. Uh, so it's just a very good example of, of really how heat and humidity affects us. It looks like we're turning the corner. I know here in DC this week, this week now we're getting a little bit drier, a little bit cooler weather. So hopefully, you know, we're heading into, into fall and hopefully we'll start to have more days where we feel better out there, but there will still be humid days, heat and humidity. And um, I think what uh, Dr. Sedgley has to say about that is really important, and I experienced it firsthand (laughs) um, and and really in contrast from running in San Diego in lower humidity and then back here in D.C. in the high humidity. And let's just hope that as we get closer to fall marathons and our goal races for our runners, that the weather, uh, you know, the weather cooperates. And we've always said that going into fall races after training through the summer is actually usually works out better than going into spring races after training through the winter, because in the spring, you may get a hot day and you've trained through the cold in the fall, at least, you know, we've trained through the heat and then we hopefully get a cooler day.
1: Yeah. And for those with, um, great reminders, Lisa and congratulations. And for those who have later fall races, um, to stay acclimated, dress a little dress, just dress a little warmer, um, instead of trying to be as cool as possible. Um, put yourself in a position where you're still sweating in your runs on, on the coolest of cool days. Don't hesitate to wear a long sleeve shirt. And we say that because you gain acclimation, of course, which will yield great results in the fall, but you also lose acclimation as well. And if your fall race isn't until November, you're going to see your, your training times, your paces, Absolutely, be faster, which is fantastic, and take advantage of that, and that will bring so much confidence. But at the same time, you may encounter, especially at Marine Corps, which is October thirty first in uh, October. I think this year it's the 29th. Is that right in DC? In October, always end of October. Yep, yep, yep. Um, it's generally either really hot that day, or it's like a crisp, cool day. Sometimes there's rain, but it, it there's there have been some hot Marine Corps marathons. So do humid. what you yeah, Yeah. Do what you can to maintain that heat acclimation. And one way to do that is to put on a few layers, even on those cooler days that aren't really cool enough to require said layers, still a great way to kind of try and maintain what's left of that acclimation so that you can use that toward your race time and your race pace, uh, during your goal race. So, but those are good tips, Lisa, particularly because I think a lot of people at this point in their training are feeling a little defeated. It has been up and down the East Coast and in the Midwest. It's been an extraordinarily humid summer. And I think people have really struggled mentally and physically. And I think your words will provide a lot of comfort for folks who, who may not at this point see that it's, it's not just you, it's everyone. And um, you're still building fitness.
0: Yep. And that's actually, you know, another, we're, we're at the point in training season for fall races, where not only is that, you know, that heat and humidity is, is really causing some runners to feel either discouraged or, or really struggle, um, but we're getting up in mileage. And so people are starting to, you know, the, the effects of of a lot of volume of, of running are starting to, um, to show. And that's where, you know, we as coaches are kind of, coaching our runners through pulling back a little bit when they need to and um, wrapping up their training so that they can get to the start line healthy. And that's one of the reasons we want to have Dr. Sedgley on. Dr. Sedgley is a um, sports medicine doctor with a family medicine background. And um, we've talked a lot to our, um, our, our doctors that we've had on lately about uh, COVID, about menopause, but, you know, we always forget that there's just some general um, general runner um, issues and runner ailments that come up, and especially as we build mileage, so that's why we wanted to have Dr. Sedgley on, and along those lines, before we get to him, we did want to mention that, um, uh, you know, sort of a background story, when I went on, Paul and I went on a cruise in uh, April, we met, I'm sorry, in February, last February, we met um, a physician from Atlanta, Dr. Amy Baxter, who also has a um, she has a pediatric background and she um, she invented a device that uses something called mSTIM. It's kind of a deeper stimulation than um, TENS that we've talked about before in terms of, um, you know, for, for some people who've had uh, plantar fasciitis or Achilles tendonitis using a TENS unit, um, but she uh, she um, used a, a, a deeper stimulation called m to come up with a device to use on kids for when they get shots, to eliminate the pain. To It, it, it distracts the, she can explain it better than I can, but basically um, disrupts the nerve sig- signals so that when kids get a shot, they don't feel a shot. And um, in in developing that, she also realized that the m had application to, um, to uh, muscle and tendon injuries and, in particular, plantar fasciitis and um, invented something called vibrapool that you can use not only um, for plantar fasciitis, but for runners specifically that's probably the most Relevant application um, a a unit that you can use to um, help alleviate the pain from plantar fasciitis and we've talked about that being one of those frustrating injuries that come up, especially as we build mileage and we're always kind of opening, keeping our ears open for anything that might help with that um, with alleviating those symptoms and. Paul, who had been having some plantar fasciitis symptoms, kind of said, I'm gonna give it out, give it a try. And so ordered the VibraCool device and really has liked it. Um, I recommended it to a couple of our runners who've been struggling with a little bit of plantar fasciitis. And um, they've really said it's really helped um, eliminate their plantar fasciitis pain, especially when it first starts coming on. Um, so Dr. Baxter actually had gotten in touch with us recently. Um, to talk about, uh, you know, how, how she can better promote the, the um, technology to runners and offered to give us a, a discount code for run, so runners can try um, the device if they'd like. Um, if you go to paincarelabs.com, you'll see the whole selection of the cool devices, specifically the plantar fasciitis. One, I think it's $59.95 right now, but you can get an extra 20% off um, for Run Farther and Faster podcast listeners with the code rfs. 20. And Dr. Baxter is awesome. She will answer any questions. If anyone has any questions for her, we can put them in touch with her to learn more about the technology. Um, but again, the feedback has been good. It's a, a like a deeper stimulation than a TENS unit. It also has a an attached um, cold like ice pack that, that helps. And um, you know, we're kind of all for anything that um, isn't going to hurt us that just can help with that recovery, whether that be a percussive you know, massage, uh, uh, you know, massage gun or, um, or massage therapy. Um, And the VibraCool seems like another kind of tool to add to um, add to our our collection. So anyone who's listed interested will link that in the show notes, but it's paincarelabs.com, VibraCool device, and the code is RFF20. Um, So, uh, you know, Dr. Sedgley talks a little bit about, you know, some of those common injuries that he sees come up in addition to his experience as Um, Medical director for a lot of large races. Uh, Dr. Sedgley has been at Boston many, many years and again, kind of has a specialty in, in heat adaptation and making sure runners are running safely in the heat. Um, he is a physician specializing in sports medicine and he, was, uh, he trained his fellowship, he trained in both family medicine and sports medicine. Um, his special interests include musco- musculoskeletal injuries, evaluation of non-surgical orthopedic problems and concussions. Uh, he's also the team physician for the Baltimore Orioles. He, Like I said, he's been the medical director for the Baltimore Running Festival. Um, he's worked with Howard County Community College Sports and uh, he really specializes in working with runners, triathletes, and bicyclists. So um, he is got a really relevant um, background. He, he himself is a, a runner, doesn't run as much anymore because of some surgeries he's had, but he still enjoys running shorter distances. He's a cyclist um, and he really gets runners. So we were excited to have him on the podcast and talk to him a little bit more about non COVID related running, you know, injuries and issues and how our runners can stay out of his office and when they should go to his office or when they should, you know, when should they go to a, an, a specialist like, like, like his specialty or when they should go to a physical therapist, like where we should start. Um so it was really helpful to talk to him and um he just had a lot of really helpful information. Like I said, that takes us back out of as we as we head out of hopefully COVID, you know, more COVID-specific issues and want to get back to just some general uh, runner issues really helped us think through some of those.
1: Yeah, he was great. And coincidentally we've had several physicians on over the last month. So we hope that those listening have Um, gotten a lot of benefit from listening to the physicians, I mean, between him and Dr. Bays. And um, last week's episode was really interesting. While Dr. Sims is not a physician, she's a PhD, certainly the information she provided was very, very interesting. Uh, We did receive a lot of questions about that episode and, and we had a lot of questions. So we're pleased to share that Next week, we invited to come on the show um, one of our registered dietitians that we've been working with for years, who is just so knowledgeable and also one of our very first guests on the Run Father and Faster podcast, and that is Amy Goldsmith the owner of Kinder Nutrition, and she's going to be on to talk with us about the application of what Dr. Sims provided, what she's found in her experience as a registered dietitian over the last 20-something years, and as someone who regularly treats menopausal athletes. So, Lisa, I hope that you have a great week. I look forward to talking with you next week when I'm feeling better. And hopefully, this is just a distant memory. And I promise everyone to share with you and be very transparent about how my recovery is going because I really want to walk the walk. Um, we are coaching a lot of runners right now who, like me, contracted COVID over the last few weeks and we really want to make sure that everyone fully recovers before jumping back into their fitness routines to avoid any long-haul symptoms and i absolutely will be doing the
0: same myself so yep. have a great- i think like you said julie like we we know a lot more now than we did last january you learned some lessons from last time and it sounds like you're going to try to do you know things uh really be really smart this time and i think it's going to help our listeners um navigate because um so many so many folks are getting COVID and getting it for the second time or the third time and, we still don't have a lot of answers, but um, uh, you know, another um, thing we talked with Dr. Sedgley about is some research that's going on. I think we'll have some more direction in the you know in the future. Just like everything else, we're kind of learning as we go, but we'll have some more direction. But anecdotally, what we are seeing is our runners who have really um, honored the recovery and taken the time off for that five days, seven days, maybe ten days before easing back into things. They seem to be, again, anecdotally, and it's still early, but they seem to be having the smoothest we return to running versus runners who may be jumping back in a little bit sooner. Um understandably, you know, we're runners, we want to get out, we want to run, we want to train, we want that that adrenaline that we get from the endorphins that we get from running. So it's hard to sit still and recover for extended period of time. So we get that, but that's sort of what we're seeing is that the, the runners who are really taking the time to allow their bodies to recover are having a smoother recovery. So um you know let's let's keep uh you know keep our keep keep observing and keep seeing what you know what's happening and keep our ears open for new research that comes out. But um I hope that you feel better and I hope you take care of yourself this week. And uh, I'm glad you don't have any big uh goal races on the horizon that you have to worry about. You can just focus on taking care of yourself. Amen. Yeah. Have a great week Lisa. You too. Bye. Bye. Dr. Matt Sedgley, welcome to the Run Farther and Faster podcast. Thank you so Mm -hmm. much. For joining us today
2: this is great to be here thank you so much
0: and um, let's just get started by um, maybe introducing yourself to our listeners and telling us a little bit about your background what type of medicine you practice and the focus of your of your of your practice
2: sure thing so I'm a primary care sports medicine physician so that means I usually live within an orthopedic department somewhere but I don't do surgeries okay so uh, I'm trying to keep people away from surgeries unless that's really what they need to get back to, to what they love. Um, my training, I went to UMBC, uh, lived here in Maryland. I was an Army brat, so lived kind of across the nation in various places Kentucky, Minnesota, North Carolina, et cetera. So I've been here and there, but ended up at UMBC for undergrad and then went to uh, University of Maryland, Baltimore for medical school, where we have mutual friends. Um, and uh, after that, I went to the University of Minnesota, where I trained in family medicine. Uh, so it's a three year program and one of the five ways that you can become a, a sports medicine physician. You can do that through emergency medicine, through pediatrics, through physiatry, uh, through internal medicine or family. So there's a lot of disciplines that can become a, a, a primary care sports medicine doc and mine's family medicine. I actually had a private practice out in Minnesota uh, for many years. and. Then we decided we'd come back to Maryland and I did the fellowship to become a sports medicine doctor and I've worked at MedStar Health since then and I've been the team doctor at UMBC where I graduated for a while and now I'm at Coppin State collegiately and I help out with a ton of races. Uh, MedStar has got me running their directorship for running medicine so I try to get people to walk or run as much as possible because of the benefits of physical activity. And so you may see me at any of the uh, runs in the area you know we'll cover 5k 10k 12 milers you know half marathons full marathons 50k ultras you know i'm usually at the sidelines uh when i can run one of them i'll i'll join you you're the back of the pack um and then i've got a, a newer role where we're working on uh heat injury prevention and uh that's something i hope to touch base on as well um although today and this weekend is going to be killer running weather with no humidity and no heat but I'm the co-director of uh, emergency action planning. So we look at every event uh, within uh, the region and we try to make it safe.
1: That's really fascinating. Um, it sounds like you've got your hands in a lot of things. Based on all of your different roles, where are you finding that you're making the most impact in the running community right now?
2: I tell you, I, I'm blessed. My boss is a big runner. He's done like 53 marathons. And you know, I, I like the ability to, um, one, see if we can make uh, races safe. Uh, we've got a lot of good buy-in. I think you know my biggest probably impact is looking at uh, writing what I would call protocols. That I volunteer every year at the Boston Marathon. Uh, if For those who've run the race, that first white tent when you finish on the finish line, that's tent A. I'm usually in there on the heat deck uh, with some very dedicated experts from around the world who are ready to treat you if you do get heat stroke. Um, but we also are developing numerous protocols on just, you know, running with diabetes, hypoglycemia, um, hyponatremia, where you drink too much water, Um, when we were developing one for the Wounded Warrior Project uh, with Dr. Madsen uh, in Florida for the adaptive athletes. um, You know, we look back at just the basic things, which, you know, cardiac events, and it's very humbling to say, you know, over 35 years old is when you see cardiac events, uh, which it just doesn't feel right when 35s. In the rearview mirror, when you're saying that, uh, so we're I think we're making a big impact uh, looking at how races are prepared for uh, kind of high acuity, low uh, you know frequency things that occur. So you may never, hopefully, ever see anyone who has heart problems at a race, but when that happens, we want to make sure that person makes a full outcome and can get back to their, their you know life and running. So that's where I'm really excited right now. Um, I'm very blessed to have relationships with a lot of the races in the region. Uh, And, you know, I love being active myself. So, and I think that's probably the biggest leverage we're seeing as far as changing racing. Uh, And it's nice to see the buy-in from the race directors and even the runners who, you know, survive some of these events like that's so cool. Like, thank you for dunking me in the ice water. (laughs) Um, Actually, the first thing they sometimes say is, do I have heat stroke again? I don't remember the last mile of the race. And I'm like, yes, you did. (laughs)
1: Wow. So you've seen a lot and because we are a Boston Marathon focused podcast, can you share with us a couple of events or memories that you have, whether positive or negative during your time as a volunteer for the marathon?
2: Oh gosh. So, you know, first thank you to Chris Tranos and his crew up there for having us up there. Um, you know, he brings in some of the world experts, uh, to lecture, um, especially, you know, as part of the, there was a group of, um, you know, he'll bring in marathon directors from ireland from europe uh, from all across the usa to see how they do it there Um, they have lectures on you know pertinent topics uh, that we mentioned earlier uh, whether it's heat or heart um, hyponatremia what a wonderful resource it is to have literally thousands of volunteers uh, for that race i've been there when it was super hot Um, i mean very very hot In fact, i've probably treated Maybe close to 50 heat strokes in my life, but the majority of them were 24 of them were all in one year at Boston. And for those who remember, this is probably about five-ish years ago. Um, I mean, every fast runner was coming in, and it was it was very busy. Not a single death amongst any of those heat strokes. So uh, very proud of that. Um, what they do there is just top notch, and so and they really have an integrated platform where it's physicians, physical therapists. Athletic trainers, uh, EMTs, so they're they have an embarrassment of riches and resources there to to throw at the runners. Um, Of course, the next year was very cold. My phone was yelling at me saying, uh, "You're in a flood zone," and I'm like, "Well, I can't leave Copley Plaza. That's where I'm assigned." And I had five like jackets on. I was just so cold because I'm not making any heat standing there from 5 a.m. to the last runner, Um, and we had some hypothermia cases there. I've actually, I lived in Minnesota. I've treated cross country events that were, you know, cross country ski events where it's 30 below and never saw hypothermia like I did that year at at the Boston Marathon with one core temperature, I believe was 83. Uh, And despite all those hypothermias we had that year, not a single death. So it just proves that, um, you know, with the right preparation, you can actually make running very safe. And, you know, we always hate to cancel events unless there's really a good reason, we also want to make sure everyone's getting good individual advice. You know, if you have had heat stroke before, we know you're gonna probably have it again. So I, I think Boston's had hot years and cold years. Um, sometimes it's not the numbers, it's just the individuals. I remember every single person I've you know treated there and it's a blast. I mean, it's they're exciting, compelling people. Um, you know, I wrote an article for the Washington Post a year or two ago and I got this letter and they're like, hey there was a gallery in the Boston Marathon. She was eight months pregnant and you said you could do it safely. And she's she said nice article. And I'm like, I remember her like, she, you know, so it's fun. And I like, you know, when I run myself, when I'm not actually working the tents, uh, I'm not you probably can't tell on the podcast. I'm six foot eight, about 260 some pounds. So I'm not tearing up the course at four minute miles. But I think it's super compelling, like to be next to that cancer survivor or You know someone who's you know not doing well they they got a stress fracture they didn't get to train so now they're like i'm going to finish this race and you're next to them and. Those are kind of powerful uh, experiences when you can be with someone with you know a meaningful race for them, and it may not be a a PR, but it could just be something that really uh, helps them get through their life
0: think that underscores our appreciation as runners and I know you have it too as a runner of, of the volunteers that are there and of the medical medical staff that that's there um, you had told me when we had spoke on the phone a, a few weeks ago a great story and when you talked about your height and how tall you are for, for a runner you talked about um, another story about a, a Boston story you told me about meeting Meb do you yeah. want to share that story I, I thought that was a great story
2: so yeah it was uh, so Meb uh, was in Boston and American College of Sports Medicine was there at the same time. And so uh, went to one of the local running stores. They always have like a, a run usually in the morning. And I show up and they're trying to just divvy people up for a little 5k along the Charles uh, River. And they're like, Hey, you know, anyone here a uh, 15-minute miler? And I'm like, you know, not yet, but I'll be there soon. Uh, you know, 12 minute, you know, 10 minute, they're just trying to divvy us up into little packs so we can all run and talk. And then they're like, anyone a five-minute miler? And you know, a few of you, and then they're like anyone a four minute, like. So this short little african guy is raising his hand i'm like i think that's men so i walk up because i am not in the four minute mile group and i'm like can you teach me to run a four minute mile and he of course he's you know about five feet one standing next to me at six foot eight he looks up at me and he says i can do that if you teach me how to dunk and so we hit it off it was good he was um i don't know if you guys sell stuff or you know well, no, but he, he's sponsored by Elliptigo, and uh, he was like, I'm I'm doing this talk on Elliptigo. He's like, why don't you come hang out with me afterwards? I'm like, sure, if you don't mind me smelling. Like, I just ran five kilometers. So, um, and then I was, actually, he gave me a ticket to his talk. I'm in the front row, and the guy introducing him is like, how do you say his last name? And I'm like, how do you have a map and you can't say Katsatsiki? Like, and he's like, wait, say that name again slowly. I'm like, I think I'm saying it right. So, it was, I just had a blast. He, he's a very humble guy, um, super nice. You know, he didn't have to invite me. He didn't have to talk to me. He could have been like, Hey, I'm trying to get my mindset, you know? And if you had, I totally would have given him his, his space, but what a nice guy. And I think, frankly, that's that's been my personal experience, whether I'm at like a 10K, you know, somewhere, or what have you, most people are pretty friendly when you're running and I like that about the community. Um, so yeah, Meb's. I got one Meb story. Maybe there's some other ones. I got some other famous runners I've met, um, but they're probably all thinking to themselves, "Shouldn't this guy be a basketball player or something?" But I got into running after uh, I had about five foot surgeries when I was in my 20s. In fact, uh, the the last foot doctor was like, "You probably shouldn't run again." And I was like, "Well, that sucks." I, th- I thought I did all these surgeries to run. <laughs> And um, you know for a while I didn't run because I was an intern in family medicine I didn't have any time and. After a year or two I actually just decided one day hey there's an eight kilometer race in St Paul Minnesota i'm just going to go do this thing. And so I, I got out there completely untrained and uh, jogging in sweatpants that were like you know the heavy cotton ones, because I had no running gear and. Uh, I'm You know getting near the finish line feeling really good i'm like man, they said I shouldn't run, but I have no pain just not very fast. So i turned to the people who were about to finish with me and you know we're talking and i'm like man i didn't want to tell them i didn't train you know because they they looked like they had been working together a lot so finally they're like you know uh what's your story and i told them about the surgery and how i was told not to run and then i got back to running here and it was feeling good and uh i said i guess i'm a little bit uh self-conscious about my time here and they're like well don't worry uh this is our first time running too we're all smokers and we've decided to stop quitting we're going to quit smoking today and i was a little bit humble there, but it was just, you know, we all had a laugh and we finished and it was great. and So I started running more and luckily I, I don't really have any pain when I run, I'm just not fast. so But I think that's a good lesson that running can be very accepting and it can be a very open community. And so if you have somebody who's thinking about it, you know, they can, you can make friendships. And frankly, we all know that, you know, physical activity is wonderful, lowers your cholesterol, lowers your, you know, blood pressure. We could be here for hours talking about those benefits, but I think there's a really nice community of um, you know people out there who run and you don't have to be the guy winning the race to feel good about yourself. And sometimes a lot of times I like, listened to your last podcast. Uh, there was a guy who used to be, I guess, the Running Times editor, the, the former Runner Times, and then it was talking about the role in, in mental health, how running can really be super beneficial for folks. I, I strongly ascribe to that. I think that's important to realize.
1: Well, a couple of takeaways that are great from what you just mentioned. First of all, we we love Meb Kipleski because Meb, that's the tone for the entire running community because he is someone that certainly doesn't need to put himself out there and befriend those who are not running nearly as fast as him but he is a connector and by doing that he influences the entire running world by showing people that running who who you spend your time with is not defined by your times and at the end of the day Meb, although he will always be known as fast and of course a super talented, hardworking runner, I think at the end of the day, what he'll most be known for is being such a nice person, such a genuine person. And and that's something that all athletes, runners and non-runners can take away from is the importance of who you are as a person, not just the sport you play. And secondly, um, we love that as a physician, you did exactly what you would tell your patients not to. As a typical runner. So, not only are you a physician for runners, but you are absolutely a patient for runners. And so, when you made the decision to go out and do that 8K with no training after multiple surgeries, were you thinking about that? Or were you kind of like, I'm an experiment of one and I'm just going to go do this because I'm tired of being um, out of the sport I love?
2: Yeah. So, you know, to be fair, um, you know, I'm pretty sure my surgeon wouldn't have loved what I did. But, um, you know, the reality is, And this is important, you know. I think you always have to look at the risk and benefit. You know, I tell people this all the time. Uh, You know, there's not like blanket statements out there. You know, for you know, and and sometimes people will come to me with injuries, and you know, all the high school you know athletics are beginning this time of year, and people say, well, you know, can I go out there and and do my 5K training with my high school team? And uh, you know, sometimes they've got a bad stress fracture. You know. you know, I work with uh, the male and the female athletic triad coalition, trying to educate people to eat so they can feed their bodies and be healthy. And, you know, I'll be very honest, like sometimes people will have these long rest periods and they'll be swimming and biking and trying to get back. And, and you know, if states are coming up or regionals or counties will say, look, you know, you're 12 weeks out, you may not be super competitive because you've been cross training, but you're, you're in a safe place where you could return. Um, if you know you look at some of the, you know, a practice, you know, the, the second practice of the year, what was your time three years ago, you know, as, as a freshman, you know, on the cross country team? And like, well, I don't know. I'm like, well, that's because that was just part of the process. And we may be able to, to miss a day here or there for the longer term goal of never having a stress fracture again and getting it back running. So I I always like to say, what's the risk? What's the benefit? And what does it mean to that person individually? um you know we've had cancer survivors who are like i really just want to run i'm like well you know if you only have X weeks to live from your oncologist why am i going to stop you from running you know it's like i think it's your body it's your choice and a physician should be able to tell you hey if i'm going to recommend god forbid i tell you don't run why what's the risk you know if you have a femoral neck stress fracture and you know you're not eating well and you know there's there's some things we can make better maybe a short-term rest is the answer to get you running long-term so you're never hurt again. But, you know, I think that sometimes people say, well, I've, I've pulled a muscle and it's feeling good. It just feels tight. I'm like, maybe it's time to go for a little jog, see how it feels. You know, I just, I feel sometimes people come to me sometimes only for that second opinion to hear it's okay to try to get back to running. And there are a lot of ways we do that now. You know, we have tons of allies and friends in the PT world that, you know, they have like, anti-gravity treadmills, people can aqua jog. There's all these different ways that we can start to ease people back in and we're not bubble wrapping them, we're not sticking them in the corner and telling them to do nothing. I think that takes, you know, when we talk about the the bigger injury, we're taking this person's identity as a runner and and we're threatening that saying, look, you know, you can't run. So you have to be very respectful of that because that's very stressful and that can actually cause anxiety, um, that can cause, you know, sadness, so I think I try to recognize that and just say, you know, if, I, if I'm going to say it's just dangerous to do something, I want to give them a good reason, and I also want to give them one other thing, which is hope. You know, you can't just say, well, you know, you got a dreaded black line. You know, it's a horrible tibial diaphyseal fracture. That, that's not. I mean, it's educational, but you want to tell them, look, I've had people get an intermedullary rod and get back to running. Or you know, this is going to be a this is going to be a heavy lift, but you know, you're a runner and. I'm a running doctor and I'm going to stick with you till you're back doing what you want to do. Um, I think you talk about the authenticity with say Meb and some other leaders in the running community, we try to just meet the runner where they're at and just say, this sucks, you know, sometimes there is a bad injury, but we want people to realize that there's usually a way forward.
0: This is why we, you know, often are telling our runners when they're looking for, you know, to go to a physician for whatever reason that, you know, find somebody who understands runners and isn't going to say, just stop running. Um, So I think that that really underscores that. In your practice, what, I mean, what is kind of the, what do you see the most? What, what kind of, you know, injuries, what kind of issues are you seeing? I know you said, you know, kind of within orthopedics, but you're family medicine. So, so what do you see? What kind of patients do you see? What kind of issues are runners coming into you um, about?
2: So, I, th- I think that's changed over the years, uh, and and part of that is um, access, I think, is easier now uh, with, you know, patients can refer themselves directly to a PT in most areas, which I think is great, um, you know, because if you got a mild little niggle or sprain or strain, that's something I, you know, I'm here for you if you want me to see it for that, but I know a dozen really high quality PTs who would be able to work with you and, and get you through a minor injury. So, we probably see a slight, um, you know, transition to maybe a little bit more severe stuff that I see, not because I think there's more severe injuries out there, it might just be a selection bias. Um, you know, I think what is probably the number one thing I see the most is probably stress fractures. Um, and that, you know, back in the, the good old days in the 80s and 90s, I think people really thought they had to have some sort of deep pathology to have a stress fracture. Most commonly, I see people unintentionally under fueling uh, kind of giving themselves a relative energy deficiency syndrome, and they'll get a bone stress injury. It's not quite a stress fracture, but it'll, it'll be a bone stress injury. And, and they're like, "But what did I do wrong?" You know, and and maybe they just increased their mileage by ten percent, you know, a week. And then by the third or fourth week, they have not increased their caloric intake, um, you know, by a commensurate amount. And my other Boston guy I met up there was Scott Jurek, and for a long time I was vegetarian, which I still thank my wife because. She's like, I have to cook more vegetables for you. (laughs) But, um, you know, I I read his book because I was like, dude, this guy's awesome. He lived in Minnesota and I lived in Minnesota. and He's vegetarian and I I did lose a lot of weight and was able to get a little bit faster, but started to get a little bit of pain in my foot one time. And I did probably get a bone stress injury on my uh, right second metatarsal. And, you know, I just needed to eat more. And And I wasn't doing the smart things like, you know, how much iron am I getting? if I'm not eating red meat, you know, am I getting enough spinach? Do I need a supplement? I didn't take a B12 supplement, which I know I'm a doctor, don't yell at me, but you know, like you sometimes wear the hat where you're the runner and you wear the hat, where you're the doctor. And it's easy sometimes to look at someone else and say, let me analyze you. Um, But I probably see those big things where people come in with a bone stress injury or stress fracture. And of course there's overuse. Um, It's fun to run, you know, sometimes you want to join that group that's going a little bit longer or 50K is calling your name, but you haven't really ever done a 10K, and that looks fun. So, you know, overuse is out there, bone stress injuries are out there. Those are probably the two largest ones. Um, and so, and remember not all stress fractures and bone stress injuries are the same, some are high risk and others are not, but that's probably the, the number one thing I see. Um, you know, I, I'll talk to patients a lot about optimization of, you know, like trying to run, We'll see a lot of cross country people coming in saying, hey, it's the beginning of the season, do I take iron? I say, well, normally we just don't plaster iron across the board and say, what's your ferritin level? What's your, you know, or they say, hey, I have vitamin D levels in the past have been low I had a stress fracture. So then we'll look at them and say, okay, you're a high school runner, you need X amount of vitamin D. We want this close to 50, you know, we're gonna shoot for that. And, you know, maybe we get some more postmenopausal women who are running and they have different, you know, recommendations um, from ACOG, which is American College of OBGYN. You know, you don't want to have too much vitamin D calcium to clog up the arteries. So those are kind of conversations we have um, that are common. And we're trying to always optimize you know, people's care because the other group of stress fractures isn't not eating. Sometimes it's, you know, hey, I'm 67 and I'm starting to get some osteopenia and maybe when i ran when i was younger i had you know some oligo- amenorrhea where you didn't have regular periods and bone density is a little bit lower than we want so those are common things we see in my practice uh and we sh- we work multidisciplinary you know that might mean you're working with a pt on video gait analysis to reduce ground reaction forces if you have a tibial bone stress injury you could, might have to work with your endocrinologist you know we found i mean there's some really fascinating things when you actually do a deep dive and why someone's getting two or three stress fractures and you commit to that person you're going to stay with them until they're running you may be working with this person for months and months and years till you find something and it's always like i guess there's it's kind of cool for the doctor like oh my gosh your kidneys spill calcium who would have guessed that you know like that's not a common test we do but working with endocrinology sometimes you find some stuff and I love it because it's, you know, it's like a little puzzle, a little mystery.
0: So what, what are the, you know, um, this is, you know, a question we get a lot from our runners and um, when they're going into their primary care physician, you know, for their annual checkup, what are the values that we're looking at runners? You know, you mentioned ferritin, you mentioned vitamin D, you mentioned B12, like what should we be looking at? What should we be having our doctors, you know, as runners, what should we be keeping an eye on?
2: Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting, a lot of the, um. Professional societies uh, or larger groups are like, hey, you know, don't don't uh, screen everybody, right? Without a good reason, and that's usually because you know, screening tests are are kind of like if well, we're going to lose a few of your listeners here. But when I start talking about like sensitivity and specificity and predictive values, um, it's epidemiology, so it's kind of like snooze. But um, you know, if you're going to screen people, you want to make sure you have a solution for it, um, obviously. I think if you have, you know, fatigue, uh, you're, you're losing some performance, you know, I think those are reasons to definitely look into that. Um, I think it's always very controversial, uh, or the, the topic you'll have on the discussion with the, the coach, you know, for the cross country team is can I just throw everyone on, you know, x supplement, and I think that, you know, if you have a bone stress injury, uh, you know, we need to individualize what your needs are. And I like to say a normal you know, results of vitamin D is probably around, you know, 30 on the blood test. Although most people would argue runners probably need to be closer to 50. Uh, But again, I don't want to cause someone who's got kidney stones to, you know, yell at me and say I was in the ER last night with 11 out of 10 pain because you told me I needed to take vitamin D. So that's why we don't just like say, hey, 50,000 international units for the whole cross country team. Kidney stones hurt, uh, but you know, hypercalcemia because remember, vitamin D helps pull in your calcium can give you uh, anxiety, can give you abdominal pain. Uh, So, you know, I I think you have to first do no harm. So, that's why we don't often just across the board give the entire team, you know, iron or vitamin D. Um, Certainly, you know, if you are anemic, we want to look into that. That is sometimes your diet sometimes again, unintentional. you know people aren't eating. Enough. Or they really found you know vegetarianism or a certain you know restrictive diet really works well for them. They don't have stomach pain when they uh, remove like say gluten in their diet. We hear this a lot. and you know, are they going to do the full workup you know when they get a scope and a biopsy like from a gastroenterologist to prove they have celiac? You know, I just had someone today who was like, "I ref- no one's going to touch my body with an endoscopy. I'm just not going to eat any, you know, gluten." Uh, okay, you know, I, she feels better with it. So I think you know we want to individualize that. The other thing is, though, some people will argue that you know getting enough a high enough ferritin helps performance. So it's another reason sometimes people will say, "Well, if I'm going to get blood work for anemia or other workup, can we always just?" You know, maybe recommend to your primary care doctor who isn't sports trained, say can we throw um you know just the full iron panel on there? Can I get a ferritin? Can I look at my percent, you know, saturation, my TIBC or total iron binding capacity. It, it's information I think is valuable if you're having symptoms. And I mean, what parent who's runs doesn't have fatigue because of course you're managing a household, right? Or you know, we have two fur babies at my house. We have two dogs. They like to wake up at 5 a.m. So, you know, I, I think it's nice to try to tie investigations to, uh, you know, something with purpose. So I, I think it's not a problem to ask your doctor, Hey, I'm tired. I want to get, you know, look into this. And they may be thinking sleep apnea, you know, depression, thyroid, because that's what they're trained to do. But you may want to say, Hey, as a runner, I got a lot of foot strikes. Can we look at my iron, my hemoglobin, my ferritin? Uh, and hopefully in a shared decision-making fashion you can get you know them to do the tests you need
1: you bring up a couple of interesting points um first is that uh we really appreciate that you um gave the example about vitamin d and the impact of just uh willy-nilly taking vitamin d and how that can have ramifications if it's not specific and the reason we appreciate that is because there are and we've mentioned this before on the podcast a proliferation of companies now such as inside tracker that, um, they pretty much sponsor every podcast, but ours at this point, and they offer to, um, it's you order basically tests for your, you give your blood, they do a penelope of tests, and then they send to you this really nice, neat package of where you, um, are low or have certain deficiencies and then provide standard recommendations with charts. And all these athletes are like, I use inside tracker. It's changed my life. And, as a physician we'd love to hear your opinion on that uh the second take in addition to inside tracker that we appreciate you bringing up though is um talking to your physician and and asking for a workup in the context of your symptoms and here's why we we coach a ton of masters athletes and specifically masters women many of whom are in some phase of menopause mm-hmm. and though their their blood panel and their results and what those mean are markedly different, we would assume, than someone who is not yet in that phase of life. So, um, would you mind addressing those two issues first, with respect to inside tracker, and second, with respect to menopausal, peri, or postmenopausal women?
2: So, I have no relationships. I, I always say I have no, dis, you know, don't, no disclosures, um, and you know it's always tough because I think with inflation being high, I'm always looking for you know disclosures because who doesn't want some more money? But at the same time, I you can't buy back your, you know, if you have a reputation and it gets sullied, you can't, it's tough to get it back. So I, I don't have a relationship with any, you know, testing facilities per se. I do really highly recommend individualized um, you know, assessments. And I think that the challenge of just throwing everybody on a, a team on iron, everyone on, on a team on uh, vitamin D does have its downsides. I mean, I don't doubt if a patient comes to me and says, I did this, you know, group of testing and i've taken a supplement where i was low in b12 and now i feel good of course they feel good they were actually low they found it but um it was not because they knew they were b12 deficient so i always like to always like not order a test uh unless you need it a good example this would be an mri people say do i need an mri on my knee you get a master's athlete with MRI of their knee and it's not going to be normal right and and i think that that is something i remember. Um, Dr. Rob Johnson, who is at University of Minnesota, he's, he runs the Twin Cities Marathon every year, he would run by my tent as I was volunteering, just kind of like everything going okay. And, you know, he was in his 60s when he did that, and he continues to run, but he always threatened people. He's like, if you ever show me a picture of my, my knee, I'm going to be very angry at you. <laughs> so, um, I'm like, why? And, you know, what if you have knee pain? He's like, I'm going to have arthritis, I'm going to have degenerative meniscus tears. And, and so you start thinking about it like, oh, so I've gotten this test. What am I going to do with that information? And, and I think that's key, you know, like don't order a test you don't need. And that's tough because it's so fun to look at the picture. So fun, you know, it's like, you know, there's colors when your hemoglobin is in the green zone or what have you. So I, I think that's, you know, we're very visual creatures. Um, so I understand that. and look, if someone came to me and said, I want to get these tests done, I'm going to do them through, you know, this, this group or whatever, I'm not going to begrudge them. I, I want them to be invested in their health. I just always caution people, um, you know, hey, what are we going to do with that information? And so, uh, you know, if you know people want to get that done, I, it's their body, they get to choose what to do with it. My other thought is um, to follow up on your second question, give that, give that question to me again, if you would, because I want to, you, you had asked uh, one.
1: Sure. So we coach a lot of masters athletes. Yes, yes, and yes, yes. so uh, those who are in near, in post, wherever they are on the menopausal continuum, the results of their blood work are going to have a different meaning than those who are not yet in that phase of life. And and do you want to talk about that a little bit?
2: Yeah. So when we look at masters athletes uh, and especially you know, perimenopausal or postmenopausal runners. I think it's wonderful because it helps their bones, helps their cardiovascular system. Um, now, it's interesting though because if we were to get you know a hemoglobin on say a senior running at one of the like local high schools, you know Potomac, Maryland, and they were anemic, we'd say, well, you know, this person may need to eat more uh, energy. Maybe they're iron deficient. Maybe they're B twelve deficient. We'd look at you know their complete metabolic. But if I have a um, 55-year-old, you know, female who is anemic. Yes, I should probably think about those things too. But what's her colon cancer status? You know, have we had a colonoscopy? Um, I mean, there was, it was in the newspaper, you know, in the last few months. But we had a, a 28-year-old who had colon cancer, and the only sign he had was fatigue. And when we checked for an occult blood test, you know, three out of the three were positive. So. I think there needs to be just to kind of take a step back um, and look at the whole picture And you know, we talked about earlier about high, high doses of vitamin D um, being, you know, not what the ACOG is recommending for postmenopausal women because of the concern of cardiovascular you know, risk there. I think that's legit. Um, so when we have a master's athlete, I think we have to just take a step back, whether that's an MRI on their knee, it's, it's going to probably be abnormal. It's not that you can't get an MRI of your knee says that we want to have a very good reason for it. If we want to look at the labs, I think it's reasonable if someone has symptoms to explore those, but we also have to take the perspective that we don't want to just think, oh, you know, runner. We want to think master's runner and see what kind of things in our differential diagnosis might come to mind.
0: That makes that makes a lot of sense. Let's shift just a little bit. I want to talk more about um, we've been talking a lot, Julie and I in our podcast the last few weeks. Like you said, this weekend the weather is glorious, but we've been talking a lot about heat and training through the heat. And you know, last week when we had the high heat here, every single runner of ours was writing us, telling us, you know, in their workout logs, this was awful. I what's wrong with me? I (laughs) so so tell us a little bit about um heat. We we talk about acclimation and adaptation talk to us a little bit about how runners can run through the heat, what they can do. Um, You know, we always tell our runners, slow it down, take walk breaks, but what, what can runners do? And particularly when it comes to racing and, you know, we have some runners who are getting ready for races that are going to be hot. So your experiences at hot races, what, you know, what can we do to make training and racing in the heat? um, Maybe not easier, but more productive and safer.
2: So I think that this comes, you know, there's different perspectives. I think the race you're in should always be, monitoring the weather and giving you some information we use a very technical manner of watching the heat at baltimore marathon and the other races i'm involved with called the wet bulb globe temperature Um, you can google that it's a very fancy equation but we we buy you know these thermistors and they basically give us a number that tells us essentially that you know whether it's a hot day or humid day and the american college of sports medicine will say that's green you know yellow red, black, you're supposed to cancel races when it's in the black. Um, so we, we hate to see black, which is usually that temperature they give is not the temperature we're used to. So it, it incorporates as their cloud cover, as their wind. So when they say 82 on the wet bulb globe temperature, every one of us would be like, I would have taken 82 last week in a heartbeat, because that was 20 degrees cheaper or you know lower. Um, my general sense is that essentially, um, What you want to do is make sure your race is being safe like if you look at a race do they have ice water submersion at the end do they have a heat deck are they monitoring the race so that makes you feel like you know look if you're a fast runner and you want to go out there and you feel like hey i've trained in the heat okay i want to push myself i feel good i would feel really good about a race with a you know ice water submersion and rectal thermometers which are the only accurate you know temperature there is And people who know what they're doing so if i do push myself past that edge and i get some heat exhaustion or i get heat stroke uh, with an illness i can be saved because certainly heat illness can be lethal um unfortunately we've you know heard in the maryland uh, region the last few years there have been multiple deaths in the football world and usually they're having a lot more padding and helmets Um, but the same thing they do in football a runner can do which is acclimate so if you have the ability to be in the heat for, you know many many weeks your body literally makes you know biochemical changes uh, with its proteins and you'll sweat differently uh, you'll also find that in general um, you know you will acclimate and feel better in the heat uh, my first run when i moved from minnesota to um maryland i thought i was going to die i mean it was just so humid and that kind of makes sense so I give a lecture to the US Army on heat stroke every year. And I tell them, remember the Titanic movie? Remember like, you know, Rose and Jack, they're in love and they fall into the water after the ship sinks and Rose is on that little, you know, door or whatever. And she's soaked, her petticoat is soaked. She's got ice everywhere and Jack's in the water. And, and she's like, Jack, I'll never let go. And, and then Jack dies and she lets go and we won't go there. But But why did Jack die? And why did Rose live? And the reason is because the way you want to get the most heat off of you is with ice water submersion because of the conductive value of water. So when you run too fast and you have heat stroke at the end of a race, they dump you in ice water so it can just pull the heat off of you. When you're running, you're like Rose. You are losing a little bit of heat through evaporation, but that, and that's great, but it's not as good as dump jumping in water, right? So. I'll tell people, you know, if you get heat stroke, jump on ice water. If you're running, be like Rose, try to just, you know, evaporate of heat. That's why humidity sucks, because you've got water on your, you know, extremities, which you're sweating, but there's also water in the air. And you don't have to be a scientist to realize water and water is no gradient. So you can't cool yourself when it's 100 degrees and 100% humidity. And you're making heat, even though, you know, we are built to run longer distances in the heat, more so than a a dog or a, a horse or other quadrupeds they're fast in short distances um you know we want to make sure that we're being like rose and not like jack unless we have heat stroke then we'll be like jack so it, it knowing a little thermodynamics and the movie of uh of titanic is helpful to know about heat injury
1: i love that analogy it's one of my favorite movies so yeah that's a great scene and it's a great analogy um and you mentioned this earlier but it's worth emphasizing the reason in addition to just not wanting heat stroke to begin with, once you've had it and heat exhaustion, you're more susceptible to it in the future. So,
2: no, so we talked about, you were mentioning the master's athletes, you know, there's a lot of risk factors, uh, for people who are on blood pressure medicines, beta blockers, not only slow your heart rate, uh, which is, you know, you want your heart to actually have its cardiac output go up as you're running, but it helps you cool the body. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, blood pressure, uh, medicines, antidepressants, Calcium channel blockers, tricyclic antidepressants. I mean, I'm not here to have a pharmacy lecture, but you know, there's a lot of medicines that your masters athletes might take that might put them at higher risk as well. If you have pediatric runners, I know that we work a lot with a youth running group in Perry Hall. Uh, we want to make sure they're very well acclimated, have hydration breaks. Um, there are things you can do to to make your run or your running event safer. So if you know the the medical director who's setting up the race they can help out and you know certainly if you have a hot day, but it's not humid, take the water at the water stop and just put it on you. You know, it, it's easier to get that water to evaporate off of you while you're moving and cool you. Um, and there are things you can do to, you know, as far as your training, my general sense is you're right though, if you've had heat stroke before, you're at high risk to have it again. And there are people who, um, like I said, I was at Boston and the, we had someone who was in the ice water submersion for over 45 minutes you know, rectal temperature was above 105 the whole time. When she finally came to the first thing she said was, did I have heat stroke again? So sometimes if you know you've had that, it's okay to, you know, be a participant in a race. Maybe you want to run a little slower, right? Get that medal and finish because it's oppressively hot and we've got a, you know, high pressure system over ourselves and we're just dying here. Okay, you know, one year at Boston, they're like, "Look, we're not going to cancel the race, but you guys got to be smart here. You know, take it down a notch, and you know, take the W and get the get the win, and, and come back and race another year." That's logical, you know, it makes we sense. We ran
1: it. We ran it that year. It was 2012, and they gave people the option to opt out. And because it was Boston, I mean, barely anyone opted out. But it it seemed like everyone really respected the weather that year and ran slower. Yeah. Um, just anecdotally, I know of one runner in our area. She. Uh, was an incredibly talented runner. And she ran a race in our area called Lawyers of Heart, which has been a longstanding uh, 10K race. And it's, it's not at the best time of year. It's in June. So it's a hot day typically when people aren't yet acclimated. And she suffered heat stroke on the course. And she's fine now, but her running has never been the same never. And so it is something to think about for runners, particularly masters runners who may be a little bit more susceptible to that is, is that one race worth that risk? So do you have any other guidance though, for those who, I mean, we live in an area where it's hot, basically four months out of the year, it's extremely hot. Once we're acclimated, we Lisa and I always are telling our runners, to um, taking electrolytes, not just during a run, but outside of your run, taking a lot of electrolytes. What's your opinion about um, salt tabs and do you? what do you tell your patients with respect to using those?
2: So I'll tell you, I personally think that there's a lot about salt we don't probably understand. Um, you know, the if you listen to like uh, Tamara Hugh, who is the doc at Western States, she's actually a podiatrist who then went and studied nothing but heat cramps and cramping with um in South Africa with the comrades marathon you know she will say salt tablets might actually you know not be ideal um when we talk about hyponatremia which is where you drink too much water and you dilute the salt and you know if you're supposed to have a certain concentration you have more water than salt because you're losing salt Uh, that's a condition that can be deadly as well Uh, I always tell people you know I think it's a very individualized thing I. You know, here I am the head of a race, I I always ask the race director, will you have uh, salty chips at the end of the race, because a lot of the runners I see do not need an IV. of normal saline they need a bag of us potato chips or you know my favorite is I do the Frederick half very slowly every year and i'm like looking for those salt and vinegar chips, because if I don't I get cramps. And so i think you know especially in masters athletes there's been some studies with martin Schwanellis out of south africa that once you have a medical condition thyroid blood pressure something you cramp more um you know with salt it seems to be the trick don't know why um and yet other people don't seem to need it you know they're quite fine um you know there are a lot of electrolyte drinks out there the key thing to remember is most electrolyte drinks are going to be even closer to water than your blood is. So the concentration of salt in your blood is similar to that of ocean water, right? So anyone who goes to the ocean here and accidentally slurps some of that high quality ocean water in, it's like, ugh, it's like brackish, it's salty. That's the same salinity as our blood. So when you're drinking at your choice of electrolyte drinks, it's still not quite enough salt. So I will have people, I say, look, you know, unless there's some reason not to, Go have you know if you're doing an energy you know goo or shot, the ones I use have salt supplements, and they seem to really help my cramping. And so I think there's stuff going on there, probably at the nerve muscle endpoint that maybe we're not totally masters of understanding yet. Um, I think it's important to be humble. Certainly, um, we know that if you're a slower runner and you drink at every water stop and you take ibuprofen, um, you're probably going to be higher risk for that hyponatremia condition. Uh, and we generally at larger races can afford to have a sodium analyzer at the finish line and test your blood and and give you iv sodium if it's low enough because that can cause brain swelling and obviously that's not good um and I, i think that we build all these protocols for heat for cardiac for sodium um but sometimes they overlap we'll see people come into the tent and they'll be hot they'll be confused we'll cool them down and then we check their sugar and they have a sugar of 40 because they had, you know, maybe a, a virus, not COVID, but just any other virus, you know, a week or two before. And they're like, their stomach's not quite right. So they didn't eat before they, they ran. So then they got that deficit. Um, I know I'm looking at an experienced runner when they're getting a goo in the corral because I'm like, oh, I see you. You know, you figure it out. You need this energy now for, you know, 45 minutes later. So I, I think that, uh, Knowing yourself is the best thing though for runners. You know, if you're if you know you're sensitive to heat, maybe it's time to take that run at like nine at night. You know, I got offered to be the director of a race that was in July. And I said, I wouldn't do this race as long as it's run during the daylight hours. And they ran the race anyway, they had a bunch of heat strokes. And the next year they decided we're gonna make this a race at midnight with fireworks. And I'm like, there you go. We can still run. We just have to be smart about it. So maybe you run at night when it's cooler.
0: You alluded a little bit earlier to things that we can do during training to acclimate. What what else? You know, what do you what do you recommend that runners do to be prepared for that day that they get out there and they they've got to run the race in the hot weather?
2: Yeah, I think you know certainly um, you know so hydration. We talked about a little bit hydration. I think is key. Knowing how much you need. Um, you know, I'm a larger runner, and uh, I always tell people drink to your level of thirst. Okay, because your kidneys are going to tell you how much to drink if you come up to a, a water stop or something and you're not thirsty I don't think you, I don't think you partake. Um, certainly, though, uh, you know a larger runner like myself who's slower probably going to need more more fluids. And so it's not uncommon for me as long as the race allows it to have my camelback on to supplement between uh, water stops because I will lose 12 pounds in a half marathon that's you know for my wife who's a much more elite runner than me. It's only five, two and a hundred pounds. If she loses 12 pounds, I'm looking for a missing limb. I mean, that's you know, generally a problem. So know yourself, um you know, it's also one of those things where I've had, you know, runners who are rather elite and they know exactly how much, you know, they need. They've calculated out, they've played with it. You know, these runners are doing 50 miles in a day sometimes and they know themselves very well. I'm not going to tell them they need to take, you know, extra or y. If They've played with it enough. They know I trust that, Um, but that it goes to the point that you can't just go out there and be like, hey, I'm gonna play around in the severe heat. You may wanna say, look, I'm gonna try this race. I'm gonna have my support crew with me. My wife is always meeting me at mile six of most half marathons. She's got extra water. She's got ice. She's got the van in case I cramp up and I don't, you know, don't make it. She's got the salt, you know, my salty chips. She's got everything I need. And if I'm good, she's like, you still have to mow the lawn tomorrow, right? Like, or whatever. So um, I think having like a plan works, you know, and if you have a, uh, you know, spouse or partner, someone who, you know, maybe your partner says, Hey, I'll, I'll, I'll come with that race with you. I don't run, but you know, do you want me to have something for you? And uh, that matters because, you know, we hear about these heroic, you know, races. Some people who do like, uh, you know, bad water will jump in big ice baths, you know, every few uh, miles I'm pretty sure it helps them get through the race. Um, now you don't read about that when you see their incredibly fast time. So maybe you just like look at the race, ask yourself, what's my goal. You know, is my goal, is this an, a race for me? Is this Boston? Or is this to, you know, a race to just, I'm trying to get my miles in. I want to make sure I'm fueling well. Maybe I had some GI upset last time when I tried a different food. Um, I think if you run enough, you can kind of tweak those things. And then you have to be, not afraid to say okay i'm going to learn from this race this one sucks you know i, I hope you don't dnf but occasionally you say look i tried a new goo and i just i felt nauseous or something uh or new new shoes and my shins are killing me and, and if you try something you don't know it might work out great but on the other end you might say i'm never trying that strategy again so for heat i would say you know maybe you look at hydration maybe you look at training in the heat um you know i've had runners who tell me they get like one of those saunas and they just sit in the sauna you know for 20 30 40 minutes They start adding 10 minutes at a time they drench in sweat and their heart has learned to deal with that um i think that's a legit way to to look at it you know as long as they're being safe and wise um there's a lot of different things you can do i think to prepare and just ask yourself what's my goal every time you go out to run because you know I'm hopefully it's to have fun hopefully still blow up some steam um I know there's some super competitive people out there and that's fine but you know if you got a hot and humid day if you ruin yourself you know it's like COVID you know people get COVID they can get like a long COVID or it's tough to recover sometimes from heat and if you look at the experts in heat they sometimes say you shouldn't go back to like full workouts for one two three four weeks sometimes depending how severe your heat illness was
1: well, that's a good transition into the C word. We've been talking about COVID quite a bit. Um, and that is because we uh, we have mentioned on this podcast, we just recently interviewed a respiratory physician on this podcast about runners who have had COVID and returning to running after COVID. Uh, what has your experience been? Have you been seeing any runners who are struggling with um, post-COVID Uh, symptoms and can you share a little bit about that with us?
2: So I I joined, you know, the 95% of Americans who have some immunity. My immunity came from, you know, three vaccinations and then gosh darn it, it looks like this latest wave finally got me and I was talking earlier, you know, with you, Julia, that I was kind of upset. I got it because I was doing so much uh, to protect myself, but I think this one's just super infectious and uh I, I know you did have dr olin on uh, your last one he's really an expert in this so whatever he says follow and whatever i say maybe just follow dr olin's on his thoughts there but um it's interesting so obviously it sucked the first five days i actually thought i had strep throat because i had a sore throat and was tired and had a fever tested positive within five days the fatigue went away but um you know and i stopped shedding so I was able to start doing some things, but at ten days I was allowed back uh, to work with the Orioles because I'm one of their team physicians, and um, they have a hard ten-day um, exclusionary uh, period. And you may recall at the beginning of this nightmare, we call the pandemic. It used to be 14 days, but they've moved to 10. My employer let me come back at seven, and so people are like 14, seven, 10, airline pilots, five. You know, it's moving around. I think. Um, I'm glad I didn't get one of the more lethal, you know, waves. I think the COVID still sucks and really love having it. It was tough folding laundry at home. It just, you know, not something you like to brag that I can run and I can't fold laundry without getting out of breath. But I was watching a lot of my heart rate variability uh, on both my Garmin and my Oura ring, and it was just going nuts. Um, and this particular virus, probably more than others, is really quite uh, good at attaching to the vascular system. You'll hear people talk about they have COVID fog in the brain, you know, probably having some sort of vascular problem there. We've seen a lot of kids getting strange gastrointestinal things, uh, from COVID again, probably cause their vascular bed is, you know, very strong and getting a multi, you know, organ system inflammatory process for children who they're not dying from it, but they're being definitely affected by it. So, you know, on the one hand, um, you know i'm glad it's over with but i felt like as i tried to go back to exercise i was almost like exercising at altitude for those who've you know we we here in maryland have humidity that's the poor man's altitude uh our friends who live out in the west they have real the real stuff um and you know don't rub it in our face because we'll all just move to colorado and make it horrible there for you if you rub it in our face but i felt like i was either at altitude or it was kind of breathing through a wet cheesecloth or something, just, it was weird. And my heart rate um, took my wife to uh, the Beartooth Pass in Wyoming slash you know Yellowstone, and it was 14,000 feet. And I remember being there and having my heart rate be 140 beats per minute, just kind of walking, which is higher, because I usually have a resting heart rate of about 44. So um, you know, that was pretty, I was like, wow, I'm at altitude my heart rate was about 144, just folding clothes and walking the dog. And so that's improved. Uh, And I think there's some exciting research on what might work for people with uh, runners with longer COVID kind of research that's been going out there. It's not published yet, but we can maybe allude to it. Um, But man, COVID sucks. I mean, For everyone who gets over it quickly, lucky you, man, that was was good. Uh, It's good to be young or lucky, but I think a lot of us out there It's kind of tough tumbling.
1: Have you, um, has anything you've seen worked for your patients? Do you have any anecdotes of things your patients have done, um, whether pediatric patients or adults that have been effective in managing their running after COVID?
2: So this is clearly a little bit experimental and not standard of care, but um, I work closely with John Letty, who is the team physician for the Buffalo Sabres. He's a concussionologist and, and he and I are good friends from all these national conferences for athletes. Um, he actually has done some interesting work on concussion where for people who cannot get back from concussion, he has them do a sub-maximal exercise protocol. And they literally call it the Buffalo treadmill protocol. So you hit your head, you get a concussion, most of us get better in two, three weeks. The people who take you know 12 weeks to get better or just aren't getting better, he puts them on a treadmill and has them walk, but he does not let their pulse go up, does not let their blood pressure go up, which I know for every runner you're like puke, that sounds horrible, but it seems to retrain the vascular bed in the brain and their concussion symptoms get better faster than those who don't exercise at this submaximal rate. And then for those who go into a more maximal rate and they get into that, you know, go from green to yellow to orange zones for exercise, their headache just gets worse because that's probably part of their post-concussion syndrome. I was talking to him recently and emailed him, and I'm like, hey, have you tried this on long COVID? Because what if it's something similar? And he's like, actually, i am already got the research started, and he's doing like, he's like, it's not published yet. He's like, I can't tell you the research. He's like, he's like, you're a clever guy. So I have started with some of my fellow sports medicine doctors at Georgetown and others to try it. Um, again, I can't promise you that it's gonna fix everybody, but it's interesting because we're not demanding people to run We're just telling them, hey, we're gonna check your blood pressure while you're walking on a treadmill. We're gonna keep one of those pulse oximeters on you and keep your pulse at a reasonable rate while we watch your oxygen. And a nice slow walk seems to really help. And that's what I ended up doing. I just didn't didn't really run for the first few days. I just refused to get very fast. I just walked my dog real slow. And now, when I fold the laundry, my heart rate is back in the 40s. So, now, is that just because it's been you know a few weeks? Did my you know very super slow walks with the dog help? I think we need some more research to you know we're scientists. We'd like to point to what is actual you know proven and not just opinion. But I think that's where the very cutting edge research is going. We've already seen this with people who have pots. If, if you have other runners who have postural orthostatic Tachycardia syndrome. There's a clinic at Duke University where they, you know, they're like, okay, hey, we're going to do the basics of sips of water, you know, snacks of salt, compression socks, sometimes sex hormones. If you take OCPS, they do the four S's uh, for that, and then they do some of this work with some training. Seems to be promising. So I I think it's a very vascular-centered virus because we see people getting myocarditis with it from the heart sometimes. Um, So I think exercise and and you know slow walking and then jogging and running may be the way out for long COVID. And we're pretty excited to see where the research takes us.
0: That is fascinating. It's just anecdotally from the runners that we're seeing, we just talked about this with Dr. Olin yesterday, the ones that we're seeing get most set back are those that come back too quickly and are trying to go out and run hard. And that's what they, they may have had no symptoms or very little symptoms during COVID. And they say, I feel fine. I'm going out. I'm going to do a hard, 5k, I'm going to go out and do a, you know, a harder run than you've told me to do. And then, you know, a week later they're saying, you know what, I feel COVID again. That's what they're you know saying. And they're getting like a reemergence of these symptoms. So it's just so interesting that anecdotally what we're seeing supports it. you know, we're trying to push on all the runners, go out for a walk, go out for an easy job, even if you feel good, like for the next week, just keep everything easy. And I think it's, it's hard for runners. They want to get back to their training and they want to get back to the race that they have, but we're seeing that anecdotally. So it's a very interesting.
2: Yeah, one of my colleagues trained at Harvard for their human performance lab, and now he's here actually with uh, my group. His name is Ankit Shah, S H A H. I'm going to give a shout out to him. Uh, He's a sports cardiologist. And if you have any symptoms, they're what I always say, like from the neck down, um, you know, other than mild cough. uh, Generally, I like to make sure that, you know, he does the full, you know, EKG, echo, stress test, he does a cardiopulmonary evaluation where he'll give you your VO2 max. Uh, it's, it's a nice thing we do for our elite professional runners yearly anyway, because we like to follow them. And what's crazy is some of our elite runners like Mike Wardian and others, they they don't get old. Their hearts don't get old, because they're, they're eating well and they're running every, every day. Um, but you know he's seeing a fair number of people who are concerned about myocarditis. And you know the concern we had early on with COVID was there was an overuse of MRI um looking for scar tissue on the heart and you know i think that that's probably turned out to be maybe frequently overthought of uh, because i've got a lot of elite runners who run very fast who they have scar tissue on their heart but you know guess what you know like that's not from covid so what do you do with that information you know it's kind of like if you get an mri of the shin it'll sometimes get both shins and you're like well the left one has pain but you have a bone stress injury on the right i'm like i don't care about that one like you know that it's not clinically relevant so you know he he's an interesting guy because he does a lot of work with the people post covid professionally uh with our you know orioles and ravens and our runners um and so you know that's available for anyone who you know is in the region and he sees people from all over the world but i think that that's again to your point this is a very vascular uh anomaly and so people who push too hard too fast probably going to feel not so well and you know I, th- I took a very slow approach. You know, the, the United Kingdom had a 17-day return, which I tell you, 17 days of not running. I, yeah, I'm not going to lie to you. I lost some fitness, right? But um, by, by going slow, I felt like you know, if I had gotten myocarditis, if someone tells you, you have myocarditis, whether it's from COVID or some other virus, you're you're not running for three whole months at all. Zero. So I mean, I was like, okay. I'm just going to take the loss here and go the full 17 days and, you know, getting back. So it's hard to convince others to do that. And I understand that, especially if they have competitions, goals, you know, races, but I think I didn't want to risk it. And so, you know, if someone comes to me and says, what, what did you do? I'll tell them I went the slow route. That may not be what they choose to do with their body, but I want to make sure I have a, a rationale for it to support the recommendation. Yeah. I think that's a
0: great advice. And I think we try to, reinforce that with our runners that it's better to take a couple weeks now than have to take a couple months or more, um, later. And, uh, you know, we talked with Dr. Olin yesterday too, about adjust, adjusting um, goals or expectations. So you have a big race coming up, you know, maybe we, you know, shift the goal and we say, we're going to forego this race to, to save your health for, for another day. And there's always another race and there's always, you know, we always think about Boston and everyone wants to get to Boston, but there's another Boston or another chance to qualify for Boston or another race down the road. So I think that's, that's a really, um, you know, important point to make is that the patients now can, can pay off, uh, can pay off down the road. And like you said, that was, you know, your experience, but hopefully, you know, and again, anecdotally, what we're seeing is that that's the runners that are doing best that we're coaching are the ones that are taking it more gradually and being more patient. So, so we appreciate that
2: it's kind of like when we we discovered all the benefits of high intensity interval training, you know, like people were like, but I, I just want to put in more miles, you know, and you're like, well, what if we did like in high intensity and then low rest? And everyone's like, I dropped time. Right. And so that was to me, like, again, maybe more isn't more all the time. I get it. I, you know, the, the LSD runs are important. That's super important if you're to me wrong. Uh, there's definitely a role for that. But I think that if you uh if you look at our vascular system, it likes some you know variety. There should be once you're back running, you wouldn't you know just run intensely every single time. So um, yeah, I, th- I think it'll be intriguing to see what we find. Uh, you know, with COVID and, and long COVID, there may be some other factors involved um, that we don't know yet. But it's only been around for two and a half years, so I th- would encourage people just to you know listen to their body.
0: That's great advice, and it's encouraging to hear that there is research going on as to what you know might help runners. Because I think we're all looking for answers, and as coaches, we're looking for answers. And we don't have, you know, there's no, there's no magic elixir. There's no answer. There's no um, one answer we can give everybody. Like going back to what you were talking about before, is looking at the individual. And um, you know, you can't give everybody a certain dose of vitamin D. You also can't tell everybody the same exact, you know, it's going to have the same exact path come, coming back from COVID. So
1: um,
0: I think that's kind of an important important lesson to take away so um you know we've talked to you for an hour you've shared so much information that we could probably talk for many many hours more um you're an amazing resource and you know just the fact that you are a runner you get runners you work with runners you understand the runner mindset like we said at the beginning we always advise our runners to look for physicians that that get runners. Um, so we really, really appreciate it. Um, we hope that we'll get to see you at in an upcoming race, hopefully not in your medical tent and not from heat stroke, but hope that we get to see you. I know you're also a cyclist. So hopefully at you know an upcoming cyclocross race uh this this season, my, my kids will be at all the cyclocross races. So it would be really great to get to see you. And and we just appreciate um you know you taking the time to spend so much time with us today to share information not only about kind of the standard runner, you know, runner issues that you're seeing, but also um, those that are unique to COVID. How can
1: listeners find you if they want to reach out to you? Are you available on social media or is there a way for the public to contact you?
2: So, yes, I, uh, I, so here's my thing. I I have an office number for those who need to see me. Um, I have offices in Frederick, Maryland, in Ellicott City, Maryland, and Westminster, Maryland. Uh, Office number is 410 751 Eighty-eight zero zero. If you have any trouble getting a hold of me, there the office manager is uh, Nancy Weber. And you know, generally, uh, might want to see people who are healthy athletes. And that doesn't mean you can be eighty-eight and you're running marathons. I'll see you. So it's not about age; it's about activity. So if you're an athlete, I'll see you. Um, I am on social media, although um, I mostly speak out against uh, the war in Ukraine. As I've adopted two children from there, and so some people might, uh, you know, not enjoy my political opinions, but certainly I, I will always try to respond appropriately. I can't give individual medical advice on social media, but um, you know, I think I'm out there. If you want to find me, uh, if you look at M. Sedgley, M.D. on various platforms, I'm not on TikTok though.
0: Neither are we. Nor do we do dancing reels on Instagram, <laughs> where we where we've drawn the line. Well, well Matt when I first spoke to you a few weeks ago um you told me that you know your goal as a physician is to get as many people involved in running as possible and you mentioned that at the beginning that you know running is such an amazing community it's a stress relief it's a, something that anybody can do and um you know that I think is 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 really valuable and we really appreciate that as coaches and you know people who've been involved in the running community for so long and seeing the the benefits that running has brought to so many different people of different ages and sizes and experience and paces and and goals. So um we really, really appreciate it. And we're so glad um Melissa uh connected us and you know big shout out thank you uh to Melissa Arking who uh, was a was a, a classmate of yours at University of Maryland Medical School. So we appreciate her connecting us and um hope that you will stay in touch so that we can um, continue to benefit from your knowledge.
2: Well, I want to thank uh both you and Julie your podcast is uh you know is creating a great place for runners within the community to come for, you know, knowledge. Uh you know, everyone can have their opinion, but you know, you guys are bringing in some really good, you know, speakers and uh, it's enjoyable uh, to see the good work you guys are doing. So thank you for what you do.
1: Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Run Farther and Faster Boston Marathon podcast. We want to give a special thanks to our editor, Erin Bryan. And if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it with others and please leave a review if you haven't done so already on iTunes. Thanks for listening and have a great week.